All right. Bear with me just a second. I forgot about this. I had some short guy preach the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Russ is shouting David Miller. It was not David Miller. It was Russ Meek, and he also is short. But I love him. It's okay. I don't know if y'all are making fun of him or me, but either way, it's okay. All right. So really excited about today um, for a lot of different reasons. We got some new faces here, um, and and so I want to just take a few minutes. And also, we got some people who may have uh, missed out on the last two weeks. I want to say thanks to Russ. He's did an incredible job of introducing uh, the book of Ecclesiastes to us. I've been praying about this and thinking about it for a long time and uh, excited what, for what the Lord has for me personally and also for you as the church. And so uh, as we kind of get started today, I want you to, to do me a favor, keep your brain engaged. For the first few minutes, um, I'm gonna, it's going to feel like school. We're going to run through some, some terms uh, and I'm going to do my best to recap in a few minutes what Russ very eloquently explained to us over the course of two weeks. Uh, and the reason behind that is if we don't understand how to approach this book, um, and we'll get into some of that in just a minute, we're going to have a bad understanding uh, or a misunderstanding of what um, the teacher, we're gonna, I'm going to call him, there's a fancy Q word you can, you can look up at your own time that I will mispronounce every time I say it if I try to do that, um, but you can call him the teacher or the preacher. Either of those is appropriate. Um, but if we don't understand some context behind this book, then it's going to be difficult for us to, to understand how we apply that then to our lives. So um, Russ explained to us that the problem that Ecclesiastes presents to us, to, to the church, to people, is one that we are, most of us, very um, acquainted with. And that's the idea that life is upside down. Uh, and what we mean by that is that those that live righteous lives often receive the rewards of the wicked, and often the wicked receive the rewards of the righteous. And we see that example um, we looked at last week in the life of Cain and Abel, how Abel presents a good offering that God is well pleased with, um, and Cain does not. He just kind of gives some of his stuff. And Cain's offering is not received as well by God, and so he's jealous of Abel, and so he kills Abel. And so Abel, the righteous in the story, his life is ended very short, uh, very shortly, very quickly. And so Cain then uh, is, is disciplined by God and says, God, please protect me because if these things that you say happen, happen to me, then I'm going to be killed. And so God puts his mark of protection. And so Cain, the wicked one, gets to live the long life, gets to gain possessions and gets to have a big family, whereas Abel does not. And that's something, I don't know about you, if you think about your life for just a minute and you apply that to yourself, you will see areas of your life where that's happened before. And so, so we now we, we see the problem, we understand the, the problem that Ecclesiastes presents, and then we say, well, what's the answer? And the answer to that is to enjoy God's gifts as he intended them to be, to be enjoyed. And so God has created us for this relationship with him, and, and part of that is, is that he is, is his creation is not just us, but all of the world that we live in, and he intends for us to enjoy those things. Russ talked a lot in the last two weeks about this idea of illusion, um, shared a great, I, I was joking with him on the phone that Sunday, we were traveling after he got done, I said, man, I leave for one Sunday and you playing rap videos in the church. Uh, I was a little jealous, I wasn't here for that. Um, but anyway, he used that to explain illusion, and illusion is language that we know and understand, and when those, those images or those words come into our minds immediately, we can't help but think about what they point to. The example that he used um, is, is uh, I'm having a brain fart, the movie with the 
Lady and the Tramp. Anytime you see two people eating spaghetti and that pasta comes up between the two of them, your brain immediately goes to Lady and the Tramp. You can't help but think about that. And so that's what illusion is. And so the author, the teacher of this book is going to use a lot of illusion and he's pointing back to the garden in the beginning. And so as you read, as we read through this, as we study this book, you're going you're gonna to read things and immediately it's going to point you back to the garden. And if you're not having uh, luck understanding what he's saying, think of the garden and it's going to bring some things into context. Okay. Two other things that we talked about and Russ put out some videos about this uh, this week, which I appreciate. One of them is, is you're going to see in, in this text a lot words like fear the Lord or fear God. And, and often, I don't know about you, but growing up, I wasn't really sure how to deal with that because I know what it feels like and what it means to fear something like when I was in trouble I knew what it meant to fear my father right the wrath of my dad but I don't think that's what scripture is teaching here we need to understand that phrase in a phrase that we use a lot which is to abide it's it's living in right relationship with God and here at TGP we describe that as abiding in the Lord and so when you see that phrase we need to think about that and then the last is this word hevel whenever you look at uh, and I'd ask you guys to read ahead this week, whether you're reading in the ESV, or the NIV, or the NLT, you're going to see that word hevel translated in several different ways. You're going to see it as vanity, as meaningless, as vapor, as breath. There's a lot of different things. And, and Russ explained that that is a very uh, generic term that then the, the people that are translating the Bible are trying to specify exactly what he's saying. And sometimes there's some things that are lost in translation. And so as you approach that word, like if you look at chapter 1, it says vanity of vanities. We're going to see that, that passage again today. We need to really understand what that means. Because I don't know about you, but when someone would come to me and say, oh, this is vanity of vanities, like, I, don't, I don't know what they mean. I don't know what that's supposed to communicate. And so when we look at this, we want to dig in a little bit and say, what is, he, what is he trying to communicate to us? So I'm sharing all these things because as we approach this book, we want to have the right lenses on. We want to have uh, the right understanding of how we need to approach what the teacher is trying to say on this. Okay? So on January 12th of this year, um, I preached on 1 John chapter 2. And in that message, uh, and I reference that just because if you want to go back and listen to it, you can, but I reference this study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we were walking through 1 John, I brought in Matthew chapter 6 to kind of help us understand a phrase that, that John is talking about, an idea that he's talking about. And it's one that we're very familiar with. It's the, it's the, the passage where Jesus is telling uh, the audience not to store up treasures in heaven. I want to read that real quick. If you would flip with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 19. Um, and, and we want to see why is Jesus saying this, okay? Because this is going to help us understand our text for today. Today we're in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. You don't have to go there yet. We're going to look at Matthew first uh, and then jump to 1 John to kind of get some context. So Jesus says this. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. So this is a passage that we're familiar with, right? I don't, I don't know about you, but I heard this a lot growing up, in one ear, out the other. And so my question for myself as I'm preparing this week, and my, hopefully the question uh, is also for you, is how have you applied that passage to your life? And what I mean by that is when you read that scripture, what application do you make? When you approach that scripture, when you, when you let that get in you, does it determine what priorities you place in your life? 
John uses the same sentiment in his letter to the church in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. He says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So I'm leading off with this today to kind of set the tone for our series. And I want you to let me kind of explain what I mean by that, by tone, okay? It may not be what you're thinking. As I've studied and prayed through this series and asking the Lord uh, what it is that he wants to speak to us, I've been trying to, um, to put a tagline with this, a phrase that we can say that will kind of encapsulate the purpose of this study. We did that when we studied the book of Exodus, and we've done that with a lot of our studies in the past. Last year we studied Exodus, and our, our kind of our tagline for that was joining God to set people free. And that was important for us because every time we approached the book of Exodus, especially the application side of it, we asked ourselves, what is the Spirit trying to communicate to me so that I can join Him to set people free? So it's important for us to have that tagline. And I've struggled with this a little bit, and so I've had a couple of thoughts, and some of them are kind of funny. And so I thought I'd share with them you today, just to kind of give you an idea of kind of where my brain's going, okay? When I first started reading and studying Ecclesiastes at the end of last year, this idea of, or this line came into my mind. It was giving up the American dream to live in the kingdom. And as I rolled that around in my head a little bit, I felt like it didn't really communicate completely what God was trying to, to do for us as a body. Okay, one that I came up with yesterday, I texted this to Russ because I thought it was funny. I hope you will too. Um, I thought about the tagline of this being getting off the Trump train. I don't know where you find yourself in that, but I felt like that was a little bit too edgy and maybe wouldn't bring us the kind of attention that we wanted. Okay, but I landed on this one. All right, and this is, this is going to be our tagline for this. And um, it's God's love in a broken world. God's love in a broken world. Now, what I wanted to do was put a verb in the front of that. But here's what happens when you put a verb. When you put a verb in there, it makes some assumptions. Like the two verbs that came to mind were um, discovering God's love in a broken world. Or abiding or experiencing God's love. Or revealing God's love in a broken world. But all of those verbs assume that you are in a place, right? In order to discover God's love in a broken world would mean that you haven't ever experienced it, and that's making an assumption. But to say revealing God's love in a broken world means that you've already experienced it would also would be an assumption that we don't need to make. And so here's what I want to ask you. Today as we go through this, particularly today and this week, I want you to ask God where you are. I want you to do some real self-evaluation and say, God, have I really experienced your love in this broken world? And if the answer is yes, fantastic. Ask God how he's calling you to reveal that. If you haven't, if you're able to take an honest look and say, God, I'm not sure, that's good. That's a great place to start. Ask the Lord to reveal his love to you, okay? So that's going to be our our tag for this study, okay? And I want to say this too from kind of from the outset. I understand about as well as any what it means to feel like you know God and then to have something happen in your life where you question everything, where you say, God, what are you doing? We've had some of those moments in our life group recently. Um, We've had some in our lives in the past. And it didn't start today with Matthew and this 1 John passage because I wanted us to be thinking about giving up, right? I don't want us to be thinking about sacrifices that need to be made. What I want us to be thinking about is what are we putting in priority in our life? 
what are the things that are most important, okay? Because here's, this is point number one for today, and here's what I want us to think about as we, and, and remember as we walk through this book. Point number one for today is our lives are temporary. Our lives are temporary. When Jesus is talking in the Matthew passage, passage, he's not saying that treasures on earth are inherently bad. He's not saying that that's a bad thing. He's just saying that they don't last. To put this in Ecclesiastes terms, they're hevel or hevel. They're temporary. Because our time on earth is limited, earthly treasures won't last, and so we shouldn't spend our whole life focusing and building up something that ultimately we're going to lose when we pass. We should spend our time knowing God and following His lead. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. We're going to start there today. And I'm going to read mostly out of the NLT today, the New Living Translation. Um, I usually do the ESV, but I like the wording a little bit better. I, I feel like it communicates a little better for us. And like Russ said in his video this week, they're all translations or they're all um, interpretations. And so um, we're, going to, we're going to kind of break these down a little bit. Verse, chapter 12, verse 8 says this. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. And depending on what translation you use, this passage is either at the end of a section in chapter 12 or it's at the beginning of the last section, okay? But right off the bat, we need to address this word hevel, this, this word that's translated as meaningless. Because I don't know about you, but I read verse 8 and I go, everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. What does he mean? Is, is the author saying that everything in life is meaningless? I don't think so. Here's what he's saying. This is, if I was going to give you Will's translation as, if I, as I've studied this out, because remember, we want to take this very general word, hevel, and specify what he's trying to say in this, in this passage. He's saying life is upside down. Life is upside down, says the teacher. It is completely temporary. You see, life for us, as we live in it now, is not what God meant when he created it. We all know the story well. Back in the garden, we choose to sin. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and sin entered the world. And because of that sin, we have to sometimes go through really hard things in life. Because of sin, we don't always reap the rewards that we feel like we're owed. We've all experienced this ableness of life. Sometimes it's the result of our actions. Sometimes it's the result of other people's actions. And sometimes it's just a result of a broken world. And there's nobody to point the finger at and blame. Sometimes life is just hard. I've used this example a lot before, and I know some of you may be tired of me talking about it, but it's the most able thing I've ever experienced in my life, and it's when my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Some of you um, have walked through that as well. And, and as all of us know, there's no obvious reason that people get cancer if there was they would figure out a cure for it they'd figure out how to stop it before it happened it just shows up out of nowhere and it's one of those things that um has has come out as a period in my life and and because of that I don't look at time the same way anymore like Bethy and I were talking the other day we look back over that year where she went through chemo and that year is just a blur it's like it passed and time stood still for us not in a good way and now, as, on this side of it, as I look at life and I think about what's important, things look differently now than they did prior to that. A small example of that 
um, is how we've decided to spend the time that we have to travel. As you guys know, for my job, I travel a lot. And one of the things that we've decided is that we're not going to go the same place over and over and over again. Some people do that, and for them, that's great. But for us, because our perspective on life has changed so much, we know that we only have a short time here, okay? And so we want to see as many things as we can possibly see while we're here. It doesn't mean we'll never return somewhere for a second time, but our priority is to see as much as the Lord will allow us to see while we're here. As Russ showed us over the last two Sundays, the, the teacher is using this language to point us back to the garden and to look at life through the lens of why God created us. And he created us to be in relationship with him. He created us to work with organic joy in the garden. He created us to enjoy the people that God has given us to do life with. And he's created us to be satisfied with the food and the drink that he provides. And I, wanna, I want you to hear me say something very clearly and understand that it's not contradictory to what we just said. Life is not meaningless. That is not what he's saying in verse 8. I read this this week in one of the commentaries. He said, um, life and its events may be merely momentary experiences, but are critically important to us and to God. God created us to have life and to enjoy it. He didn't create us to suffer and to have to, to move through life in a difficult manner. He created us in paradise to, to be and to live with Him and other people and to work and to be able to enjoy that and to find satisfaction in the food that He provided for us. The teacher saying that he himself has lived a long and full life. He's lived and experienced the best of what the world has to offer. The riches of this world paled for him in comparison to what he knew about God. I had a, a couple that called last week and wanted to meet with Bethany and I. And they were struggling with reconciling some things that happened in their past with what God was saying now for them. We had some great conversation over the course of the evening, and some of it was hard, some of it was confusing, some of it was simple and pretty straightforward. I cried a little, they cried a little, and it was good. It was good to share those things with one another. And in trying to understand what God might be doing, we looked together at Scripture to see what God's perspective was. We looked at the truth and we shared our stories of times when we went through difficult things to, uh, and, and tried to allow God to help us use those as tools to understand what's going on in their life. And look, I, you guys have heard me say this before, but uh, when, when times are really hard, like what I really wish I had was like some magic words that you could just say and everybody feels better and we can move on with life, but those don't exist. When you're struggling with something difficult, it's just difficult. But as we talked through that, there was this understanding that we weren't experiencing this alone and that it's not going to last forever, that it's temporary. And we found comfort in knowing that even though it was a struggle, God was in the middle of that, working and doing. That's exactly the kind of perspective and the kind of conversations that God is calling us to have with one another and with the people in our lives. They need to know that God did not intend for this world to be upside down. That's why this study is so exciting to me. It's because it's going to allow us to look at areas of our life where things just don't make sense. 
and to be able to say out loud, this doesn't make sense to me, and I don't understand, and it's okay. It's okay that I don't understand. While we can't answer all of people's questions and we can't fix the brokenness of the world, we can choose to live with one another and with God in this world. And before we can ever share that perspective, we have to discover it for ourselves. And so how do we do that? Let's look at verse 9 through 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 12. He says, keep this in mind. The teacher was uh, considered wise and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like nail-studded stick with which the shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. So here we have arguably the wisest man that's ever lived, who writes this book, who composes this book. He has made it his life's work. It was his profession to study, to seek out wisdom of both Scripture and of the world. And not only did he spend his life learning it for himself, but also how to communicate that effectively to other people so that he could share what he learned. But what does he say is the result of all that work? How did people receive it? As a cattle prod or a nail-studded stick. I think something is lost in translation there, okay? I don't think that's a thing. There are a few moments in my life and in your life where it is to your advantage that your pastor is a cowboy. This is one of those moments. Let me shed a little light for you on what he's trying to do here. I got a picture. Anna, will you throw that up there? Hopefully y'all can see it. This is a cattle pen, okay? Nothing fancy about this cattle pen, but it is one, okay? Why does he say that things, the, these words, these wisdom is like cattle prods? Okay, well, let's, let's think about what we would use a cattle prod for. So the cows come in in the big pen, and they work their way around. And you'll see this little offshoot here with a brown thing sticking off the end of it. That's called a squeeze chute. The purpose of that facility is to move the cattle in and to work them through those pens and ultimately get each one, one by one, into that squeeze chute. And the squeeze chute literally does what it says. It kind of squeezes the cow up and holds it still so that the cowboy or the people working them can do a variety of things. Okay, they can sort them, move one, separate pens, you know, bulls from heifers and cows, things like that. They can groom them, give them vaccinations that they need. If you're an anti-vaxxer, I don't want to hear it. Okay. The purpose of that facility is to make sure that the cattle are healthy and taken well care of. But here's the thing. Cows don't want to go in there. You know why? Because it's scary. Because it doesn't look natural. It doesn't look like the rest of the world that they know and experience. So what does the cowboy do? He hoops and hollers and gets his cattle prod and he makes them go through. And if you've never seen a cattle prod, think taser on a stick. That's a pretty good explanation. Okay? And the cowboy will use that cattle prod to zap the cows. It doesn't hurt them as bad as a taser would hurt you. I know. It's a long story. Okay? But it is encouraging them to move through that pen, ultimately to get to the squeeze chute where they can be taken care of. Okay? Now, I'm not calling you a cow. Scripture is. Okay? So what's the teacher saying? 
He's saying that all of us, because of the sin that's in our life, need correction. And it's painful, but it's helpful. The cows don't want to go through that, but they need to, because if they don't, guess what? They die. They're domesticated animals. They need help. Just like the cattle, we don't want to be forced into anything. We don't want to go in a place that's scary. We don't want to go in an area of life where we're unsure about what the results are going to be, because that makes us frightened. It makes us anxious. And moving forward sometimes can feel like it's going to kill us. Like, God, if I, if I go in this direction you're calling me to go, I don't know what life is going to look like anymore. So I don't really want to go there. But then we have people in our lives who go, hey, look, if God's telling you to do that, you really need to move that direction. I read this in Oswald yesterday. He said, huge waves that would frighten an ordinary swimmer produce a tremendous thrill for the surfer who's ridden them. Let's apply that to our own circumstances. The things that we try to avoid and fight against, tribulation, suffering, and persecution, are the very things that produce abundant joy in us. We are more than conquerors through him. And all these things, not in spite of them, but in the midst of them. A saint doesn't know the joy of the Lord in spite of tribulation, but because of it. Paul said, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. But because we live in a broken world, we're going to face times that are difficult. Because we live in a broken world, we're going to have to face hardships. But God wants to give us the proper perspective on that. What Oswald is trying to communicate is that we avoid hard things because we think they're only going to be hard. But what you discover as you go through those things is that they are hard, but that's where joy is found. It's in those moments where you get to walk through a hard time with some people and you experience the peace and the joy that happens in that community that you realize, wow, God is doing something here. Something incredible is happening. He wants us to see that we are not alone. That God cares about what's going on in our lives. That those things are important to Him. Let's look at verse 12. He says, but my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. Last week, Russ talked about how we can find ourselves between the two extremes. And the teacher is warning us that we can go extreme in spending all our time and energy studying over these things. Or by contrast, we can just pay no attention to them at all and just go through life however we please. <coughs> Excuse me. At the end of a life of diligent study, the teacher brings us to the conclusion of his life's effort. He comes back to what he's already known. We can spend our lives searching for answers, trying to change ourselves by using the wisdom of the world, or we too can come back to the truth that God gave his people when they were on the mountain, something that we talked about a lot last year. And for me, as I'm reading this book, like this is the crescendo. If you know anything about music, if anybody was in choir or band, a crescendo is this moment where the music builds and builds and builds until you just get this feeling. The band did it a little bit today. You, the drummer gets in there, man, he's getting after it. And you build and it just gets to this point of yes. And this is the crescendo of the book. I was telling somebody, I was telling Life Group last week, I used to make so much fun of Bethany because she would always get a new book and start by reading the end. And I always was like, what are you doing? This is crazy talk. Some people were like, we can't be friends anymore. It's whatever. I don't know how you feel about that, okay? And so it's ironic to me that as we're starting this book, where are we starting? At the end. 
And so here at the end of this book, he shared his whole life experience. And we have this crescendo where it builds and builds and builds. And can you imagine spending your entire life building up to a point and then realizing that the end is where you started? It's where you started. In Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, he says this. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey His commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So this man has spent his entire life searching searching out all the wisdom of the world. And he comes back to the very first thing that God told him on the mountain. Fear God. So point number two for today is love and obey God. God gave his people the key to enjoying life when he set them apart from all the other nations. Remember that we talked about it last year, that God made them different. He gave them a set of rules to live by so that people could physically see the difference between them and others by the way they lived and by the way they treated one another. And he tells them there's going to be difficult times ahead, but that he will be with them. Remember he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's where we find our joy. It's not in things that the world has to offer. It's in being in the presence of God. Much later in history, a lawyer is trying to trip Jesus up and he asks him what the greatest commandment is. And you've heard me say this so many times, you're sick of hearing it, but it's the gospel. It's Matthew 22, 22, 37 through 40. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Now you may be sitting here thinking, Will, you're a one-trick pony. This is the only message you've ever shared with us. But it's the gospel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. If we love God, if we follow Him, if we love people the way that He loves people, we looked in in 1 John chapter 4 where it says that when we do that, His love is brought to full expression through us. So how do we do life in an upside down world? We do it with God and we do it with one another. We are created in God's image to know Him and to obey Him. And the teacher says that knowing God is the whole of man. This is what it means to be human. You want to know what the meaning of life is? It's to know God, to love Him, and to love your neighbor, to love His people. Any other thing that we pursue in life is going to leave us empty and wanting. You may get that momentary high of, I want this thing, and you strive and you strive and you strive, and you get it. And just a few months later, a few days later, a few hours later, it has lost the feeling. It's gone. In chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verse 7, he says, Talk is cheap, like daydreams and other useless activities. Fear God instead. 
We can continue to talk about this until Jesus comes back, but it's not going to make a difference in our lives until we allow ourselves, until we make the effort to know God by experience. That's all I have to offer you, is to know God by experience. Deuteronomy 6.2, it says, And you and your children... And grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all His decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. In chapter 10, verse 12 of that same book, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? He requires only that you fear the Lord your God and live in a way that pleases Him and love Him and serve Him with all your heart and soul. It seems so simple, doesn't it? but yet we make it so complicated. If it's simple, why do we find ourselves constantly going to the world seeking satisfaction and fulfillment? Why do we think that more stuff or more relationships or more whatever is going to make us happy? It won't. The author will tell you, you read this book and he will be very quick to tell you, I've had all the things this world has to offer. And you go, yeah, but Will, he didn't have what we have. It doesn't matter. It's still just stuff. Not only do we go to the world seeking satisfaction, but oftentimes we also bring the world into the church to try to fix brokenness in people's lives, which I think is an even greater travesty. One of the things I read this week said, the church must caution itself about fostering an otherworldly mentality among its people who have been called to make this world work as well as possible. This world offers us no answers. It has nothing of eternal value that we can use. The church belongs to God. We belong to God. And it's time for us as the church to stop acting like the world by pursuing the things of the world. The teacher here cannot be any more clear. He has done it all, and it is all heaven. It's temporary. At the tail end of this, he reminds us that all we do matters and God will judge how we choose to spend our lives. We've talked about this so many times and it's so true again today. How we live matters. It matters in the kingdom. It matters for us. It matters for the people who live around us. In every situation we face, we can choose to either pursue God or we can try to pursue our own wisdom or the world's wisdom. And the method that we choose is going to reveal how we feel about God to ourselves and to the world. While preparing about this for this last night, I, I was in looking at, at how this book is laid out, particularly the end here that we've looked at today. It reminded me of a story that my grandfather told, so bear with me, I'm going to share a quick story. This is uh, my grandfather, before he passed away, recorded a bunch of audio tapes. He was a great storyteller, and he loved to tell stories. Um, and a couple of cousins found those audio tapes years later, and they transcribed them and put them in a book form for us. So I want to share this story with you today. Now, this takes place in the early 1900s, before the Great Depression. He was a child. He said, there were folks who lived across the road from us for a while that had a boy and a girl about the same age as Mary and me. Mary was his sister. We were doing chores together on one night, and while chopping wood, we got to playing around, as kids will. The boy across the road put his finger on the chopping block and told his sister he bet she couldn't chop it off. Well, she did. Plum off. And the story ends. 
That's it. Now this story is on, in the middle of another story. But this is how my grandfather did it. And, and so I'm reading the book of Ecclesiastes and it's like you build, you build, you build and, and then it just stops. Just like this story. Like there are so many questions I want to ask. Like what happened to the boy? What happened to the girl? <laughs> There's a lot of questions. Okay, but look. This is the application. We get to the end of this book and it just ends. And I don't know about you, but I find myself a lot like Job's friends who are going, but why? What's the reason? Like, God, why do you allow this to happen? And he doesn't answer that for us. The teacher doesn't offer anything here at the air, at the end. No explanations, just an answer. Fear God, or as we would say it, abide in God. Every person in this room has had moments in their life where God's activity or the circumstances in their life just don't make sense. You look at it and you go, God, I don't understand. You may have that moment in your mind right now. And we, just like the teacher, don't have the answers to those questions. And we may never have them. But we do have one another. We have one another. As we share those experiences, we help one another realize that we're not alone in what we go through in life. And we help share, when we share our experiences, it helps those around us to feel what we have felt before. For just a moment to live vicariously through us and and see how God affected our lives. And then that spurs them on or it encourages them to seek God for what's going on in their life. I got some questions I want you guys to discuss. I'm going to read them for you real quick, but um, you don't have to try to hurry and write them down. They're going to be in the Faith Life app. But here's some things I want you guys to talk about in a life group this week. Here's some questions that I want you to answer. And I'm telling you now because I want you to have time to think about it. I want you to ask, how do you deal with the able situations in your life, the upside-down situations? How do we help others who are going through that, specifically if they're not believers? How does fearing God help us when experiencing injustice and difficulties? And do you have any experiences in your life that God has given you some perspective on? Or do you have any past experiences that you can share that are going to help others? Look, I I, I titled today's message, um, Seeing the End to Live in the Present. Because I wanted you to understand that we are so easily distracted from what's most important in our lives. And so today, we look at the end of this book to get perspective on how we need to live right now. We started at the end to give us perspective on the whole book so that as we read it, we know where we're going. We know the end goal is to come back to this idea of just fearing God, to abide in Him and to know Him by experience. We are so distracted from experiencing the life that God has provided for us. And so by looking at the end here, we're going to be able to see the joy that's found in doing life with one another and going through hard things together. It's my hope and it's been my prayer that each of us are awakened by this study to be able to see that the life, the incredible life that God has for each of us. I want us to be able to see the past or see past the facade that this world has put in front of us. 
I want us to be able to see the world as a broken place that can find its wholeness in the God that created it. We need to see through the lie that deceived all of us so long ago. We need to submit to God and allow Him to bring us back to reality. To see the world for what it is so that we can know and enjoy what He's given for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the, for the fact that this book is included in our scripture. That we can have a place that we can go to, that we can identify with and say, God, my life doesn't make sense right now, but I know that it's not just me. That I know that others in my time and in times prior to me went through very similar things. God, I I ask and I pray that as we are having discussions about things that have happened in the past or things that we're going through right now, Father, that you would help us to see you in those situations, that you would be the joy and the satisfaction that we seek, that when we need advice and we need wisdom to, to figure out how to deal with what's going on in our life, God, that we wouldn't go seek outside counsel, that we would first come to you. That we would ask you to give us perspective. That we would go to other believers and ask them to pray with us and seek you together. So that you can inform how we need to move, how we need to feel. God, I ask that the people that are in our lives that are going through hard times, God, that you would present opportunities for us to have conversations that would help point them to you. It would help them to see the joy and the love that you provide for your people. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.